Going forward, we'll be providing a spoiler warning on any book that we believe is a good introduction to the series, such as this one. So, spoiler warning. This has been your spoiler warning. Welcome to Weird Sisters, your Discworld recap podcast, no longer coming to you from the inside of a tin can. My name is Manning, joining me as always is Danny. Hello. And Liz. Hi. Our book this month is Equal Rights, third in the Discworld series, first in the Witches sub-series. Just to start off, I personally did enjoy this book immensely. It was wonderful. I loved every second of it. And, I don't know, I just read through it a lot quicker than I thought I would have. Oh, yeah, same. I uh, I've, I usually pride myself on being a very quick reader, but I find, like, Terry Pratchett's writing makes me read a lot slower, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, but I know I burned through this, like, twice as fast as I thought I was going to. Same. It's so light and quick and snackable, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. A delicious meal of a book. <laughs> So, do we want to get into the summary? As always, our summary comes from our secret extra sister, this time from The Void Between Stars. Equal Rights begins in the Kingdom of Lanker, where a wizard has come to the tiny village of Badass, capitalized. The wizard plans to bequeath his staff to the eighth son of an eighth son, which goes awry when that eighth son turns out to be a daughter, Escarina Smith, or Esk for short, now the disc's first female wizard. Esk begins an apprenticeship under Granny Weatherwax, but soon feels unsatisfied by the witch's way of doing magic, so Granny decides to bring Esk to Unseen University. They set out first for the town of Olan Katash to get directions from one of Granny's witch friends, and Esk nearly gets kidnapped by a couple who want to exploit her magic power. She hitches a ride with a tribe of river people, then joins a caravan to Ankh Morpork. Two of the travelers she joins up with happen to be the wizard Treadle, and his stuttering apprentice, Simon. Eventually, they make it to Unseen University, where Esk is rejected for being a girl. Granny Weatherwax, who is caught up with Esk, gets her a job in the cleaning staff at the university. There, Esk listens in to discussions of wizard magic, in particular, the revolutionary new magic theories that Simon has developed. This comes to a head when he and Esk are attacked by the creatures from the dungeon dimensions, with Simon's mind taken and his body in a coma. Esk goes to rescue him, while Granny Weatherwax is forced to team up with Arch-Chancellor Cutangle to retrieve Esk's staff from the river. In the end, Esk figures out that the trick to defeating magic-eating dungeon dimension creatures is by deliberately not using magic, and with this, she and Simon are able to return home. The Arch-Chancellor resolves to consider making Unseen University co-ed, Granny Weatherwax returns to Lanker, and Esk and Simon set off to invent a whole new kind of magic. In case we haven't made it clear, we like this book a lot. Oh, yeah. Very yeah, much. Absolutely. For sure. It helped that the title's a pun. Mm-hmm. So let's delve a little bit more into why we like it, starting with the main character. Starting with Esk, I, she's a nine-year-old, and she is written very much like a nine-year-old, which I appreciate, but she is a firecracker at heart. My favorite quote, actually, from, from this book comes from her and her opinions on magic itself, but she doesn't take no for an answer very well. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it because her, like, all small children think, like, they know how the world works. Like, they have been experienced very much of it, but they are very sure on how it works. And for her, it's, why can't she be a wizard? Even though she doesn't understand half of what people are saying sometimes, and they're very, they make sure not to let her know what they're talking about half the time. I don't know. It's, I think young characters like Esk can really swing one way or the other on whether or not they're tolerable. But Esk, at this, like, at the same time, she feels like a very, like, true and sometimes, like, frustrating child that you have to deal with. But she's also incredibly likable and admirable. And I wish I knew more kids like her at the, in the same breath. So. She seems to me like, ironically enough, she's also very relatable despite her age. Like, she seems, she sees the world in very stark contrasts with each other. And in the way she does magic, it's shapes and colors and the way things fit together. It's, it's very natural and also fits in with how she views people that certain people can do no wrong. She has like a two flower type mentality. Only that was because he's a tourist and she's a child. She doesn't think that she can be harmed very well, coupled with the fact that she has magic powers. I definitely agree, although it is worth considering that she can't actually be harmed easily because she has magic powers. So she's not wrong. Precisely. There are multiple instances in the book where if she was just any other child in the series, like she would have come to great harm, but because... You know, she has this magic staff following her around. You know, she ends up being completely fine. Like, she can take care of herself, even though she is just nine years old. The setup does play into a tiresome trope where the stories of female main characters center around them inheriting special abilities, while the ones with male leads are about their actions. It need not be a deal-breaker, but it's worth mentioning for the sake of a more complete discussion of the text. Yeah, um, a book series that I was fond of as a child, uh... Magic or the Septimus Heap series by Angie Sage uh, followed that theme. Followed that theme in the first book, where you have in the seventh son of the seventh son being spirited away, um, only to be replaced with a girl who um, has her own storyline. But it's a very good adventure. I like that it kind of uses the trope and upsets it at the same time. Agreed, and. While Esk is in the position to do the things that she does because of her inherited abilities, it is her character that makes the decisions. Yeah, I think the staff, especially and up until really towards the end of the book, is just kind of a focal point for her magic. Like, it's how she does her magic, even if she's not totally aware of it. And so by chance of that, it just kind of becomes its own character, its own thing, its own agent. Yeah, going by literary standards, I would say the staff is also an excellent symbol of Esk's journey, essentially. Like, while she's training to be a witch, it's hidden up in the the thatch of Granny Weatherwax's house. It's her constant companion while she's on the tra- on the road to Ankh-Morpork, uh, disguised as a broom, like, mixing both her wizard abilities and her witch abilities. And then eventually, and then at the end, she gives it up. I would say that her arc is going from wanting all of the magic to knowing when not to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think especially that scene towards the beginning of the book where Granny Weatherwax is explaining why she doesn't just use magic to light a fire. 
is really good foreshadowing of that and showing how Esk, that is a very hard thing that Esk needs to learn, and she does learn it. Shall we move on to the supporting cast? I think, Manning, you have quite a bit to say about Granny Weatherwax. I get that feeling. I'll get to talk about her more. It is interesting seeing her introduction again with fresh eyes, knowing what she becomes later. I want to hear what you two think of her first. I think, in a way, Granny Weatherwax is not really a supporting character. Like, she doesn't get the arc that a main character would have. Well, I guess not really. But she gets a lot of screen time, for lack of a better term. And I think she's really a driving force in the book. So I think she almost, like, deserves to have her name up there with the main character, really. She does learn to recognize when her own biases are impeding her. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent way to put it. Because she has a very limited worldview, and I think it makes sense considering who she is and where she's from. And by her adventures with Esk, she kind of learns that, you know, she might not know everything. And that's probably a good thing, because there's more to learn. Yeah, I I certainly agree. But I also feel that she knows quite a bit already. And that's what serves her more going forward into new places that she has that solid base to stand on before learning more things. And she does, she does learn, but she also comes to find that there's a need for a witch everywhere, some places more than others. It was interesting seeing Granny Weatherwax as a more flawed and stumbling person, especially when they begin the journey to Ankh-Morpork. Later books present her as exceptionally knowledgeable and puppeteering, but this one gives her a bit more growth. She's relatively human. Yeah, and seeing kind of how other characters react to Granny Weatherwax in this book, I think kind of hints towards that. Obviously, like, Esk's father uh, is more than a little terrified of her, and her mother's kind of in awe of her, and that kind of seems to be how everybody in the town of badass is. She kind of reminds me of my own mother in some ways, most notably in the way that she doesn't quite understand her child. Well, she doesn't quite understand Esk, but she's going to very well support her in the best way that she can. And it it was very nice to read that, and especially in the way she dealt with other characters, like talking to the other witches and going about life. It was it was humorous, but in that way that you're looking at an older figure and you understand, but you don't know just yet how it's going to be. Should we treat the wizards as a separate entity or the staff as its own character? Let's talk about the staff, if only because it would irritate the wizards to know they were left until later. I like that idea. Yeah, I think that's fair. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it is just a staff. It's it's a very good stick. As someone who has quite a few sticks, it's a very good stick. One could make the argument that the staff is the luggage 2.0, albeit less hostile to other living things. There are some subtle distinctions, especially the empathic link it has with Esk. Yeah, generally I think the staff will only like go out to hurt things if something is going to be hurting Esk. The luggage, on the other hand... <laughs> The luggage is unstoppable. Yeah, it's a force to be reckoned with, and you really don't want to be on the wrong side of it. The staff is an unstoppable force, and the luggage is an immovable object. Heaven knows what would happen if they fought, but if they teamed up, oh boy. I was glad that the staff wasn't just the reincarnation of the wizard who gave it to her. 
I think that would have been less interesting than what the staff actually is, which is just an object that cares about her, wants her to succeed, and feels sad when she rejects it. Yeah, absolutely. About the wizard, though, I do have one question. Just because I forget names quickly, um, was the wizard at the beginning the ant at the end or the tree? He was the tree. Okay. To clarify, the wizard Drum Billet. Oh, wasn't he the ant at the end? Was he? Let me check. You're totally right. I completely forgot his name after the tree bit. That makes way more sense. Now that he didn't just drop out of existence after that conversation with Granny Weatherwax. Cool, because I, I missed that too. What do we think about Simon? Sort of the third biggest character in the story. I really like Simon. I don't know. I I'm a little. I guess I'm a little bit speechless about him. Ironic. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. But uh, I think he kind of represents what the typical hero in a book like this would be, even though he is fairly atypical himself. Uh, you know, he's this incredible magical force, and. He's a little odd, like he's got a stutter and a whole heap of allergies, it seems like, but he is ultimately like the most powerful person there and everybody there is in awe of him. And in like in anything else, he probably would have been the hero and his journey would have been him like finding his voice. So to see him kind of as a background character in Esk's story is interesting in how that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. I completely agree with you, and if you'll come with me on this journey, in real-world history, Simon would be the one who got all of the acclaim and accreditation, Esk would be relegated to a background character in documentaries about him, and people like us would then see her and want to know more about her, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like, how is she involved? What is all the cool stuff she did? Because she's part of the story too, except Equal Rights is about her, not Simon. Picturing it from Simon's point of view is, honestly, it's strange to think because that is your typical story. You have the genius, the genius force. He can do whatever. He's making breakthroughs every time he opens his mouth. And then into his life comes from quite honestly nowhere this girl with strange abilities who vanishes without a trace just to show up in a, a slightly less becoming role, but still following her own path and making herself very attractive despite, I'm just talking about in a normal, in, in a typical setting, not this one in particular because they are children. From Simon's point of view alone, she would be that heroine who's only there for a little while but is very very obviously the interest of the main character but it's entirely the other way around and i like i want to say a fiery redhead because <laughs> i've been picturing esk as a redhead because of mary and the witch's flower i thought she had black hair but that's me esk is just like an amorphous being in my head i was never able to pin down what i thought she looked like so that's the fun part about books everyone's an amorphous being yeah i think i did see simon as the kid from over the garden wall whose name i'm blanking on at the moment but the one who wears like the pointy hat i saw him as like a, a doofy kind of messy kid with glasses mm -hmm. i think that's fair freckles i thought a lot of freckles oh yeah <laughs> And I guess we could talk about how old do you think Simon is? If it's not mentioned in the book, probably around 13. Yeah, I think that's where I was putting him at. I had him kind of bouncing around between 12 and 15 in my head. Yeah, 11 and 14, somewhere in there. A quick point I wanted to go back to before I completely forgot about it. 
I was thinking that in a more traditional story, Simon would actually be completely bland and incompetent with no identifying features, but then he would save the day at the end. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I could even see how with everything else he's got going on, you could kind of rewrite him to be like, oh, he just looks like he's this like sneezy, stuttering kind of buffoon. But behind all that, he's actually this like super genius, talented wizard. He's going to get pushed into a few wizarding lockers. (laughs) Can you imagine being the nerd at the Unseen University? (laughs) I think my cat is also magical. I just looked over to the side and she's gone. Bye, Kitty. (laughs) Kitty, come back. You can blame it all on me. I was wrong, and I just can't live without you. A character moment that I wanted to point out, and this is sort of bringing us into the themes and morals section, was Treetle, Simon's master wizard. When Esk meets and talks with him on the road to Ankh-Morpork, she expects him to be dismissive and condescending about witchcraft. And he isn't explicitly, but there's a lot implicit there, which reflects the biases and prejudices that I think we see a lot more of in the real world, as opposed to how it's usually depicted in fantasy. It definitely demonstrates Terry Pratchett being very honest, especially with young readers, about what to actually expect from biased people in Britain and here in the US. People tend not to usually say that they actually hate others, just they act on it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because I know there are people I've interacted with where that's pretty much that case. It's like, oh, I don't hate this group of people. I have no issues with this group of people. I just also think this super awful stereotypical thing about them. And they don't see that as problematic in any way because it's not to them for whatever reason. If I recall the scene correctly, Esk started putting words in his mouth and he started agreeing with him as like her way of getting him to show what he was really thinking. It was pretty different from the uh, the Zune guy who's so very honest, but she's very good at detecting liars, so I uh, appreciated that. Just well run the subject. A feminist book isn't really a useful term because that's not how you apply feminism to literary theory. But this book definitely is written with feminist principles in mind. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, the story is about, literally, female empowerment. Yeah. See? Title. While the next book is where fans typically agree that Discworld actually gets good, this one I appreciate as showing us Terry Pratchett shaping out what he wants Discworld to be, which is expressly political and specifically progressive. You couldn't really make any sort of argument about equal rights, that there is, he's not trying to make a statement with something. With The Light Fantastic and The Color of Magic, there wasn't really that same kind of vibe to it. But I can see where as his like evolution as an author, if he was gonna talk about it, this would be the book to start with. And boy, this would be the topic he wants to explore. Honestly, I need a sound effect or something for expect more of this. It's foreshadowing. Real life foreshadowing. Hmm. Um, amusing too is how... Honestly, my favorite part of the book was how magic was described through the lens of the different magic users, and especially Esk, who could wield both. They seemed fundamentally the same. Like I mentioned before, how Esk sees things in shapes and colors and putting things together, and how entering the mind of a bird was like meshing with a different color, whereas performing more wizard-type magics is pulling shapes together and separating things out as they should be or as, or as she wants them to be. But the, descript- the descriptors were very, very interesting. Like, 
how wizard magic was sharp and which magic was more soft and go with the flow. Yeah, and with how they described it, I could definitely see that. It's like which magic is supposed to kind of have like have this harmonious uh, aspect to it and wizard magic is kind of like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set this on fire and the drawbacks of that. One of those drawbacks being that it's arson. Oh, you know, what's life without a little arson around? Eh? 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 Certainly we'll keep it interesting if it's always a possibility. <laughs> Thanks, Hosier. As long as you're getting insurance for it. Yeah. Or in sewer ants. Yeah. Look at us making callbacks. Something I wanted to talk about and don't know where else to put it. The book could have been structured a bit better, I think. We spend a lot of time on Esk's journey to the university and not a lot of it of her surrounded by established wizards. I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, totally, I think. If I recall, there was like a pretty significant time skip during Unseen University, but I imagine that that was just because we didn't want to hear about S cleaning rooms for three or four weeks straight. Definitely. I don't know, I just think it could have been nice to have a parallel to the amount of time that she spent learning witch magic from Granny Weatherwax, seeing her learn the ideas of wizard magic. Yeah, I think so, and I think it would kind of help make the ending of the book where she's kind of putting the two together in a head make a lot more sense to us because we were like okay this is the thing about witch magic and this is the thing about wizard magic and this is how they're gonna work together so shall we talk about some favorite quotes yeah we can do that i swear if we all have the same quote i'm gonna laugh <laughs> statistically unlikely but let's see <laughs> place your bets now all right so mine was during the travel during the caravan scene with traveling and talking to Treadle basically asks some up of that whole encounter. Why was it that when she heard Granny ramble on about witchcraft, she longed for the cutting magic of wizardry, but whenever she heard Treadle speak in his high-pitched voice, she would fight to the death for witchcraft. She'd be both or none at all, and the more they intended to stop her, the more she wanted it. She'd be a witch and a wizard too, and she would show them. That's such a good one. Yeah, oh my god. It's pretty important to me personally, as it also sums up a lot of my own struggles with certain aspects of my life, but it just, it came out and I had to, had to mark it down. I think that makes sense because it's like, it's kind of like if you make fun of your family, that's fine. If somebody else makes fun of your family, you're going to have an issue with them. I think future historians will refer to that as the gritty effect. Mm. To be... Yeah, to me, the most important part of that segment is she'd be both or none at all. Mine is, she had found them lodgings in the shades, an ancient part of the city whose inhabitants were largely nocturnal and never inquired about one another's business because curiosity not only killed the cat, but threw it in the river with weights tied to its feet. The lodgings were on the top floor next to the well-guarded premises of a respectable dealer in stolen property because, as Granny had heard, good fences make good neighbors. That's one of those... You know, it's one of those things where I read it and I just wanted to like shake my fist at the sky and go, Terry Pratchett! Get used to that. <laughs> it's like, how dare you lead this into a punny joke? Any given paragraph in Terry Pratchett's work is about to either blow your mind or make you groan. <sighs> yeah, this one did a little <laughs> bit of both. What was your quote? Zoon tribes are very proud of their liars. Other races get very annoyed about all this. They feel that the Zoon ought to have adopted more suitable titles, like diplomat or public relations officer. They feel that they are poking fun at the whole thing. That one is so good. It's like it's making me giggle to myself. I loved the liars. 
Well, let's get into the trivia section. I am a little annoyed with myself because after we recorded uh, trivia last time, I immediately remembered a piece of trivia I did know about the Light Fantastic, which is that on the original version of the book, Two Flower, yeah, Two Flower is drawn with four eyes because he's referred to having four eyes, even though Terry Pratchett meant he was wearing glasses. I read that too at one point and then found that it later led to a few discrepancies within um, the the reader base. Hot button issue. Whether Two Flower actually wears glasses or actually has four eyes. Published January 15th, 1987 by Victor Galansk in association with Colin Smythe. The original back cover features the illustrator Josh Kirby as a pointy-eared wizard, so that's fun. Dedicated to Neil Gaiman, quote, who loaned us the last surviving copy of the Liber Paginarum Fulvarum, part of a running gag from the Sandman comics that Neil Gaiman authored, and that also appears in the collaborative work Good Omens. The Remtop Mountains of Lanker are a reference to RAM in certain kinds of computers. Computers seem to be a running theme. Yeah, like the uh, druids with the flying rocks in the last book. Yeah, he definitely enjoys computers and the humor value of putting them in a fantasy world. Mrs. Palm and her daughters is a euphemism we don't really need to discuss here. Yeah, yeah, I, I was able to put that one together when I was reading. I was like, oh. This is a book about both magic and sex, after all. They tell you right in the opening. This is the first appearance of the running gag, Million to One Chances, crop up nine times out of ten. Sadly not listed on the listings for the Big Reads Top 200 Novels in the UK. Bummer. I'm not sure everybody's read this book, because <laughs> this is a very good book. Everybody should read this one, though. Like, if you have to pick one Discworld book to read, this is, like, top ten contender, I'd say. Yeah. I think you're kind of spot on with that. It's like, I really like the last two books, but I love this book, which is how I felt last time. Here's hoping that's a continuing trend. I assume it will be, but with this many books, it's there's going to be some ups and downs. I make no promises, but Pratchett hits more than he misses. <laughs> so we're getting close to the end, so it's time for our favorite footnote. And because Equal Rights only has one footnote, we made a very wise choice. The footnote is referring to... The Guild of Thieves, Cut Purses, Housebreakers, and Ally Trades, and goes as follows. A very respectable body which in fact represented the major law enforcement agency in the city. The reason for this is as follows. The Guild was given an annual quota which represented a socially acceptable level of thefts, muggings, and assassinations, and in return saw to it in very definite and final ways that the unofficial crime was not only rapidly stamped out, but knifed, garroted, dismembered, and left around the city in an assortment of paper bags as well. This was held to be a cheap and enlightened arrangement, except by those malcontents who were actually mugged or assassinated and refused to see it as their social duty. And it enabled the city's thieves to plan a decent career structure, entrance exams, and code of conduct similar to those adopted by the city's other professions, which, the gap not being very wide in any case, they rapidly came to resemble. Beautiful. Yay. And that's another thing that comes back. <laughs> yeah, it's you'd be like, oh wait, it'll come back. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You should just assume whenever I say something like, mm-hmm, that it's something that comes back later. Just like eyebrows raised, leaning closer to the microphone. Mm-hmm. The ever-present sound of, oh, it's coming. Of course, there's always the possibility, listeners, that I'm deliberately not mentioning that something comes back in order for it to be a surprise. 
just for future reference, listeners, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, keeping us all on our toes. And then you'll be getting, once we get to it, you'll probably be getting messages from me just in all caps. Oh my god! (laughs) Indeed. But that's a story for another day, and this concludes the story for this day. So, we're at the end of the show. Want to thank Willow Carter for the theme music, The Secret Extra Sister for helping out with editing, and you for listening. Check your local library for the next book in the series, Mort. Until next time, the turtle turtle moves. moves.